I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are the stories of the incredibly strange. Welcome back to all of our listeners from around the world. We're so happy to have you back with us once again for another incredible story. Now, we are going to be doing some, well, we have been doing some interesting stories about the paranormal and supernatural, and so uh, we're calling these segments the stories of the incredibly strange, well, just because they are incredible and strange at the same time. Uh, But This episode that we're going to be talking about today is one that uh, will be familiar with a lot of people, not particularly the story, maybe some people have heard it, but what the story inspired. Today we're going to be talking about the real-life story that inspired The Exorcist. Now before we get into the story, let's just talk for a second. The movie and the book came out in the 70s. The book was published in 1971 by William Peter Blatty, and then it was shortly followed up by the movie that was directed by William Freakin in 1973. The movie came out December 26th, the day after Christmas, which I don't know about you, Dad, but I mean, that's kind of an odd time to be putting out a a film about demonic possession the day after Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Say la vie, right? But what ended up happening is the film became an international phenomenon. It was shocking. It was something that nobody had seen before. Uh, after the film came out, the Catholic Church uh, said that there was a dramatic increase in people returning to religion. So that says a lot right there. Not only that, but the film was also so uh, traumatizing that they actually had nurses and ambulances outside of the theaters because people were literally passing out or throwing up in the lobby. Uh, Some people claim that they had uh, severe heart palpitations because they just couldn't handle the stress of watching this 12-year-old girl be possessed by the devil. So the interesting thing is is that, uh, you know, most people would assume that this film the the scariest parts were the ones where the uh, Reagan is possessed, but no, actually, they were the scenes in the hospital that caused a lot of disruption to most folks because they uh, actually filmed the scenes uh, the way they would be done if you were having a catheter put in and you were having a brain scan. So these images were so realistic that they actually disturbed people because of what they were seeing. So that's a little bit of background about The Exorcist, the film, but What we're going to get into today is the inspiration for the story. So for that, we have to go back to the book, and we have to go to the author, uh, William Peter Blatty. Now, Blatty himself had aspired to become a priest. For numerous reasons, it just didn't work out for him, and he found himself going down a different career path, and this was writing, becoming a novelist. And so... Blatty had remembered a story that he had seen in the newspaper growing up back from 1949, okay, 1949, about a young boy who had been possessed and this exorcism that had taken place. And this stuck with him and soon became the inspiration for the book that he was going to write 
The Exorcist. Now, Blatty had planned to write the book based on the actual case of, of this young boy, who at the time of the occurrence was 13 years old. But he ran into a bit of a wall. You can imagine that most people, especially being a part of something so radical and unusual, did not want to have their names associated with any book and really didn't want to have any spotlight. Now, I know you're thinking, well, you know, they had a newspaper article written about them, but that was an accident. We'll go into a little bit more of the details when we get into the story, but what had happened was a journal had been kept describing the day-to-day practices and events surrounding the exorcism of this this boy. And there were four copies made, and they were given to, uh, two of them were given to churches, uh, one of them was given to a hospital where the boy was staying at, and the other one was uh, kept by one of the priests. Yeah, I believe uh, there were two priests, so there probably right. were five copies altogether. Five copies. Or, or four copies right. in the original, I don't know. And that could be, that could be. So mm. we're talking about five, so possibly the original and then four copies that were made from that. So somehow somebody mm. leaked the journal out, and it made it to the press. But the family didn't want to have anything to do with it and declined to have any kind of interviews whatsoever. Blatty reached out to the priests, and specifically the priest who was involved with performing the exorcism, and his name was Father uh, Bowdern, and they declined. They didn't want to discuss it. Now, eventually, Blatty was able to talk to one of the priests who was a witness to the exorcism and participated in uh, the exorcism because there were, I believe, seven priests that were involved with overseeing this uh, event as it happened, and he was able to talk to him, and the priest who uh, was one of the witnesses, said that he believed 110% that the events that he witnessed back in 1949 were that of an actual possessed person going through an actual exorcism. That's pretty convincing. When Blatty read the journal, the copy that he was able to get his hands on, he too was convinced that this may have actually happened that this was a real occurrence. Now, in present day time, we have social media, we have all all sorts of different things. People in today's society love to sensationalize things. Uh, We have had so many faked videos of ghosts and whatnot, things that can be explained away. People who are just grabbing for attention, they want more likes on Facebook, they want more subscribers to YouTube. But we're talking about 1949. We're talking about a period of time where people were a little bit more conservative and didn't want to have their dirty laundry aired out in front of everybody, especially people living in the suburbs. So for that reason, and the fact that the journal was never meant to be seen by anybody and it was leaked out, it raises some serious questions. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I would, uh, because uh, a little later on, uh, once we've heard the entire story, we're going to have to help our listeners uh, decide what really happened. Absolutely. Now, folks, bear in mind that this, uh, this is quite a bit of a story, and we've actually pared down the, the bits and pieces from the journal to just the golden nuggets mm-hmm. to share the story. But is, it is going to run a little bit long, so more than likely we're going to end up breaking this up into two parts. So I, I hope you enjoy this, and I hope you'll in, uh, join us for the second part. But why don't we go ahead now, and let's get started with the story.
January 15, 1949, Cottage City, Maryland. Robbie's parents had gone out for the night, and he was enjoying a quiet evening at home with his grandmother. The peace in the house would not last for long. Soon, the silence would be replaced with the phantom sound of water dripping and an unusual scratching coming from underneath the floorboards of the house. A picture of Christ on the wall also began to shake and shimmy, almost as if something were trying to knock it down. The noises continued for several days. Robbie's parents called for an exterminator to come and spray the house in case there may be some pests living inside of the walls or under the floorboards. But after all of the treatments, the sounds continued and would often start at 7 p.m. The sounds, which originally started in the grandmother's bedroom, eventually moved to Robbie's room. New sounds also began to arise, like the sound of feet marching up and down the entire length of Robbie's bed. There was also the sound of scratching not coming from the floorboards, but coming from the mattress that Robbie laid on. Robbie's mother, who had dabbled in spiritualism, now believed it could be the spirit of her dead sister, Robbie's aunt, Mildred, who had passed away weeks earlier. Mildred was a spiritualist who lived in St. Louis, Missouri. Robbie would often visit his aunt, and the two of them had a very special bond. Mildred had taught Robbie how to use a Ouija board, a board game that uses letters and numbers, and an eyepiece called a planchette to communicate with the dead during seances. One evening, Robbie's mother had decided to ask the spirit if it was, in fact, Mildred. The spirit replied by knocking three times. To verify, Robbie's mother asked one more time for the spirit to knock at least four times if it was indeed Mildred. The spirit did. February 26, 1949. The paranormal events had escalated in the house. The bed that Robbie laid on would now violently shake, and scratches now appeared cut into his body. After four nights, letters were now being scratched into his skin. In the living room and the kitchen, objects would often fly off the table and be tossed to the ground. A Bible was even thrown off of a bookshelf and landed at Robbie's feet. But the events did not just stop at the house. Robbie also experienced paranormal happenings at school. His desk would shake and slide across the classroom floor. His teachers would just assume that it was a young boy being mischievous in class. So poor Robbie would often be sent to the principal's office or asked to stay after school as punishment. Confused by all of the strange happenings around their son, Robbie's parents made the decision to take him to see doctors and therapists to see what was the matter. But after so many tests, 
the results were always the same. Robbie was a normal teenage boy. The parents even sought out the expertise of a spiritualist who tried to use a cleansing method and prayers, but thought it might be best if they contacted a priest. The family being Lutheran went to their minister who had suggested using prayer and holy water. But the use of these things just seemed to agitate the situation. The minister then suggested that Robbie stay with him at his house for the night so he could observe for himself what actually was going on with the young boy. That evening at the minister's house, the bed that Robbie laid in began to shake and move. The blankets were ripped off of the boy's bed. And a chair in the corner of the room flipped over by itself. The minister reported to the family that he believed that there was something demonic going on and that the Lutheran Church could not help in this situation. It might be in their best interest to seek out the help from a Catholic priest. In the Catholic Church, exorcisms could be performed. This age-old practice, for some people, was the only hope of saving their soul. March 8, 1949, St. Louis, Missouri. Robbie's mother had made the hard decision to take him out of school and stay with family in St. Louis, hoping that maybe time away from home would help relieve some of the stress and maybe, just maybe, the problem would go away. While at the aunt and uncle's house, numerous extended family members witnessed the paranormal phenomenon plaguing poor Robbie. His cousins, who shared a room with him, saw the bed move and shake. They even witnessed his blankets lift from the bed as if being held by phantom hands. When Robbie's mother had mentioned putting him back in school while in Missouri so that he wouldn't fall behind, the words no appeared scratched into his skin. March 9, 1949 one of Robbie's older cousins had spoken to a teacher at his college, Father Bishop. He asked Father Bishop to come to the home of the aunt and uncle to bless the house and the room that Robbie was in. Father Bishop agreed. After blessing the home and Robbie's room, he safety pinned a relic of St. Margaret Mary to the corner of Robbie's pillow. That night, when Robbie got into bed, the mattress and the bed began to shake and move violently. Robbie was seen exerting no effort and lay perfectly still. Father Bishop sprinkled holy water in a cross pattern on the bed. The movement immediately stopped until Father Bishop left the room, at which point the bed began to shake and move again and zigzags were scratched into Robbie's stomach. March 11, 1949. Father Bishop reached out to Father Bowden for help. Father Bowden visited the family and witnessed the events for himself. Father Bowden used holy water and prayer to bless the room. At this point, the holy relic safety pinned to the pillow was ripped free and tossed across the room, and a bookcase 
slid and moved across the floor of the room by itself. After observing all of the paranormal phenomena and witnessing specific things that are the main criteria for getting permission to perform an exorcism, Father Bowden contacted the Archbishop to get permission to perform the Roman rites of exorcism. He was granted permission, but was told he must keep a journal of the day-to-day -day events that occurred during the exorcism itself. Father Bowden agreed and prepared to do battle with the devil. March 16, 1949, Father Bowden began his exorcism with a team of priests by his side. The first session started at 10.30 p.m. and lasted till 7.30 a.m. the next day. During the ceremony, Robbie blindly swung at the priest and spit with his eyes closed, hitting them in the face with deadly accuracy. When prayer and holy water were used, the words hell and go appeared on his body. During these occurrences, Robbie's hands were always visible and always above the cover. And at no time did any of the people in the room see him scratch any words or any symbols into his own skin. Besides the words, three lines would also appear on his legs and arms, mocking the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. On his upper thigh, Robbie also had an image of a devil-like creature with bat-like wings appear cut into his flesh. March 19, 1949. Robbie's father had flown in from Maryland to be with his wife and son. The sessions of exorcism were getting even more violent. Robbie was now making sounds that resembled a beast. He would bite and snarl at the priest who held him down like a dog, which is described in great detail in the journal. When the exorcism was taken up again, Robbie went back into his tantrum, even when he was trying to repeat some short prayers with Father Bowdern. Robbie stood up in bed and fought all those around him. He shouted, jumped, swung his fist. His face was devilish, and he snapped his teeth in fury. He snapped at the priest's hand in the blessings. He hit those who held him. On the opposite side of the room, was a bottle of holy water. Several of the priests witnessed this bottle fling itself off the table and into a wall where it exploded. During a particularly violent moment in the exorcism, Robbie's hand broke free from the grip of Father Halloran, who was assisting in the exorcism. He punched Father Halloran in the face, breaking his nose. After all of the exhausting days and hours of doing battle for Robbie's soul, the priests felt that they may have reached a point where they had an upper hand. This was when Robbie stood up in his bed 
and proclaimed that something was leaving his body and to open the window, to open it immediately. Robbie lifted his shirt, and almost within seconds of the window being opened, he collapsed into his bed, looking relaxed and relieved. When they asked him what had happened, he said that he could see a vision of a black mass moving out of his body and out the window. The demonic spirit had set him free. And as the men went downstairs thinking that they had done their job and done it well, their hopes were dashed when they heard Robbie cry from upstairs. He's back. He's back. Oh God, he's back. This was not the end. No, this was just the beginning. And believe you me, folks, it only gets worse for Robbie from here. But you'll have to find out what happens next week because, well, we're just about out of time. So I just want to say thank you. And? I hope I'm the living Richard. Well, I know I'm definitely Gary. And thank you for joining us on this incredible journey. And we hope to have you back again with us next time. For the conclusion. Yes. Yes.